Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 153-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali, oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. And Julie Golia, director of public history at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. In this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we're going to broaden our understanding of the ways women have engaged in politics and the ways that gender has even expanded and transformed our understanding of politics. That's the reason why we have Obama, and that's the reason why we have Clinton now. For the longest time, they never spoke her name or, you know, used her image. And so what does that mean in the public discourse if we cannot connect a grand symbolic gesture in terms of having the first African-American president to Shirley Chisholm or having the first woman president to Shirley Chisholm. There's a way that um, the collection is is an entry point into so many other people's stories in a way that may actually obscure the politician that is Randolph herself, right? right? And I think that's such a point because who's looking for Rashetta Randolph? And that's that's the challenge here. Like we should be looking for Rashetta Randolph and and not use her as a utility to get to the story of often a man, right? And Senator Kennedy spoke and gave his opinion of what he'd like to see happen. And he said he was gonna ask his, um, his folks to do a study of uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant. And I told him, no, no, no. Bedford-Stuyvesant has been studied to death. What we need is brick and mortar. Today we're speaking to Zynga Frazier. Zynga is Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at Brooklyn College and the Director of the Shirley Chisholm Project of Brooklyn Women's Activism. Zynga, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Zynga, set the scene for us. Tell us briefly, who is Shirley Chisholm and about the project that you direct at Brooklyn College? Shirley Chisholm is an educator, an activist, and elected official that uh, comes to Brooklyn politics in the early 1960s. She's the first African-American woman to be elected to the House of, House of Representatives, and she is the first African-American and the first woman to run for the presidency um, in 1972. So she is a phenomenal woman, and we at Brooklyn College have a center in her honor that promotes her legacy and engages a public discourse around how we should think about women's politics, as well as issues around poverty and gentrification. And so that's what we do at the Shirley Chisholm Project. It's interesting. I, In some ways, Chisholm represents the history of 20th century Brooklyn so well. And I think one of the themes that we've touched on before in, in Flatbush in Maine is her Caribbean roots and the significant impact of a West Indian community on Brooklyn. So will you say a little bit about that? Her migration appeals differently, right? So uh, she becomes, she's born, of course, in Brooklyn, New York, and then she migrates to Barbados, where her mother is from. Mm At that point, she spends most of her primary schooling in Barbados before she comes back to um, Brooklyn in the mid-1930s. You know, the idea that people are moving back and forth between these spaces and the cultural impact that has on them I think is really significant here. Yeah, It gives her a perspective in terms of what colonialism is, what imperialism is, and it also influences her connections. Her father was a Garbiite. He was a member of the UNIA. And it forms her own own understanding of politics, not only in terms of Brooklyn politics, but in international scope. 
That's really um, interesting. So there's these kind of transnational networks Mm -hmm. um, that are nurtured in Brooklyn because of the Caribbean population. How did it shape the political life of Brooklyn? Chisholm speaks fluent Spanish. She majors in um, Spanish at Brooklyn College um, because she's connected to Puerto Rican people in in Bedford-Stuyvesant and Brownsville. She lives on the same block with black and Jewish and Hasidic women. And so she's a part of a kind of diasporic space that is Brooklyn. The one kind of unilateral thing that combined all of these communities was specifically around poverty. Tell us a little bit about her transformation from um, sort of this woman who is growing up in this diasporic space in Brooklyn into a politician, to somebody who runs um, in 1968. And give us a little context on that. I would say some of it started when she was a, a college student at Brooklyn College. She meets Wesley McHolder, who is a significant kind of Brooklyn politician who's also of Caribbean um, heritage. And she also gets involved in a debate team. I think when you look at a lot of the women who emerged during that time, they're very much connected to an extracurricular activity that fosters a certain amount of abilities to learn how to debate, how to own one's own voice. And so I would I would say those are kind of the nascent stages of Chisholm's connection to politics. And then she, you know, she goes on to um, she's an educator. So she goes to teachers college at Columbia University. She works in a daycare um, as an administrator for a daycare in Brooklyn. And then she becomes a part of a long kind of um resurgence of black politics that happens in Brooklyn. She becomes an envelope uh, stuffer. Um, She does all of the kind of grunt work that we're used to women specifically during that time doing political work. And she sees that there aren't any women who are running for office. Um, There aren't many women who hold any political leadership positions. And that's how she emerges. I think this this idea of so female politician being an envelope stuffer, yeah. being a mimeograph runner. I mean, to me, this is it's it's really interesting because on the one hand, it feels like menial labor and it is menial labor. Right. This idea that men are up giving speeches and women are right. stuffing envelopes is you know, mm-hmm. demeaning. Right. On the other hand, she's getting a on the ground right. education in the basic functioning um, of these organizations, I mean, there's no better way to really understand the way things work on the on the ground and to work the office. I think it calls us to, as historians, to um, frame or think of how we frame what political work is. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That that is political work. That's exactly. And yeah. and and I think it's important that we see it that way. Particularly for in the long history of women, when so many people associate politics with electoral politics right and that is a much shorter period of time in which women were participating in that yes yes and so she gets involved with other women's groups right and she decides that i no longer want to fundraise for the men (laughs) and she along with other women who start the unity democratic club which was a very different kind of political club Um, And that had women and leadership positions. Mm -hmm. And then she decides, I'm going to run because I'm tired of, you know, Bedford-Stuyvesant not receiving the funding that it needs in terms of education. I'm tired of the sanitation not being picked up. All of the complaints that we have to male leadership that go unheard and unnoticed. So she decides to run for the New York State Assembly um, in 1963. So tell us about the the congressional election of 68. This comes out of a carving out of a new district. Yes. Right. And there were many uh, men who were poised, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who felt like everybody. Yeah, they were like, this is (laughs) this is going to be from us. Yes. And they felt that she should not have. I think it's really important to note that because of the Voting Rights Act and the kind of political pressure, specifically in Bedford-Stuyvesant, that people have put in a long, I mean, over 10 years just to have a representative like um, Adam Clayton Powell in Harlem. And so when the opportunity arose for itself for there to be a representative, of a black representative from Bedford-Stuyvesant, all of the kind of male leadership in the city council, as well as the state assembly, had already assumed that the seat was theirs. 
You have James Farmer, who decides to run, who's from Harlem, not from Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And then you have him deciding to run for what? The liberal and Republican ticket. And so all of the issues of a carpet bagger mm -hmm. come into play. And, you know, Chisholm really mounts a an enormous task in terms of running against Farmer because Farmer has money mm -hmm. and he has outside money. He has people like James Brown and Harry, Harry Belafonte and all of these people, you know, big wigs in Harlem who are supporting his run because, as he said in one uh, uh, pamphlet, you know, wouldn't you want a man to stand for you in Congress? So really? he inserts. It was so, that? Yes. Yes, wow. he inserts gender, specifically male mm. machismo, um, in the context of what leadership is supposed to be. And you're supposed to give me the chance to represent you. What he doesn't realize is that the majority of the people who voted in that district were actually African-American women, two to one. And Chisholm wow. did her work. And she understood that you are going to alienate the African-American women, specifically women in church who have supported black male leadership, black male clergy, the women who do all the work that we just talked about. And these are the women who actually are the most politically active, who are actually going to cast a ballot. And then she also talked to black men to say, hey, this is a guy who is not from Brooklyn. How are we going to elect our first representative who doesn't understand our local needs. And so even if the debates, if you hear and listen to some of the debates um, and some of the oral histories, which, which are brilliant, it's obvious that James Farmer has a national agenda mm -hmm. and that his inability to connect to a local Brooklyn constituency in terms of their needs um, really creates the tide for people to not support him and for Chisholm to win in 68. I'm wondering how much, how much did Chisholm have a sort of a consciousness or how much was she shaped by the idea that she was the first? I think she understood the importance of its history and how she would be etched in history because she was a first. But in many ways, she did not want to be remembered as a first because in because it detracts from her own political and legislative accomplishments. So if we just remember her as a first, we're not going to remember the SIG program. We're not going to remember all of the other things that she's trying to push in terms of her entire career in Congress. What happens when someone's a trailblazer? It's not just about being the first, but what happens when somebody runs for the presidency, right? So let's talk about that. Okay. <laughs> talk to us about the leading up to 72. What prompts her to run? What What's going on there? I think the historical context for the 72 run is the Vietnam War. That's where we should start. And so Chisholm's first political speech is actually on the Vietnam War and the funding of the Nixon administration and the Vietnam War. That attracted her to a larger constituency that would not have been available to her. Also, she decides to write a memoir called Unbought and Unbossed, right? After her kind of mantra against um, James Farmer when uh, she runs for Congress, Chisholm gets asked for uh, to go to speak at colleges and universities all over the country. It was really young people who were energized by her ability to talk about the politics as usual in Congress and talking really specifically about the Nixon administration and what it's doing to young people, what it's doing to minorities, what it's doing to women. And so that's how she decides to run for for the presidency in 72. She doesn't win, but her decision to run was not because she thought she could win, mm. right? And it's something that I think is important when we think yeah. about what's a political imaginary, what's a black radical political imaginary um, or a freedom dream, as Robin Kelly would say, is that it's the process. And so Chisholm decides to run because no one is talking about the political issues that were important to her. She's getting involved specifically because you're 
there are a number of students who are being banned on campuses, black students, black studies um, is emerging, black student rebellions on campus. And so her decision to run is also to give voice to those people. This, I mean, I just keep thinking about the, the parallels to today and, you know, we were talking, you know, you articulated her as a trailblazer in terms of policy, but it's fascinating because she's also really a trailblazer in terms of just political marketing. Oh, she's and a practice. strategist. Right. It's yes. remarkable. Right. It's in my right? book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I mean, it's like Bernie, like she's Bernie yes. Sanders yeah. Yeah. Yes. in terms yeah. of getting yes. their issues into the mainstream political right. ideology. Right. And right. she is you know influencing hillary and the or even you know right. um elizabeth warren in the way that she's really playing thoughtfully with these ideas about gender and there's just so much that we can trace back to her yeah yes and yeah. so we just if we think about bernie's campaign as much as people said why is he going why is he going to the democratic convention are the same questions people are asking why is chisholm showing up in miami if we went along that line chisholm would not have gone to miami she didn't have the delegates, but in some places she did have significant delegates. So we talked about how she resisted this kind of symbolism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but it's still, I mean, it's, it's, it's still unavoidable to think about like, what, what did it mean in 1972 for a woman, for a, a black woman to be running for president? It meant everything. Right? It meant everything. If you speak to Donna Brazile or Marsha Fudge or Barbara Lee or even Ronald Dellums or members of the Black Panther Party, what also gets erased is her connection to kind of black ra- the black radical movement, which she gets always connected to feminist movement, but not to black radical movement. And so a lot of my work is about reinserting her into that narrative. But it meant everything for everyone. That's the reason why we have Obama, and that's the reason why we have Clinton now. For the longest time, they never spoke her name or, you know, used her image, right? So we always heard about Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King. They get invoked into the history of creating the space for Obama as well as a Hillary Clinton, but we don't necessarily use Chisholm. And so what does that mean in the public discourse if we cannot connect a grand symbolic gesture in terms of having the first African-American president to Shirley Chisholm or having the first woman president to Shirley Chisholm. We as academics really use the word intersectionality without, you know, assuming that people know what it is, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily know what it is and are maybe intimidated by the you know the theoretical so nature many of it. <laughs> exactly, it's a lot of syllables. So it's but to me, it seems that Shirley Chisholm's story is the perfect way to illustrate this rule. So can you tell us a little bit about how you would define that work for a lay audience? I would say that Chisholm's activism and politics is the embodiment of intersectionality, um, as well as how she lived her life. It's not like lumping different things together. And I think that's what most people think intersectionality is. It's the understanding of how one's lived experiences are interlocked that cannot be separated, how people move throughout the world and who they are. And so not because she's just an an African-American woman is she intersectional, right? But she's intersectional because she's advocating for poor people. She's intersectional because she speaks more than one language. She's intersectional because she sees the importance of uh, connecting men, specifically men and women, to specific issues around marginality. And so if we think about the important role of our elected officials to create legislation that advocates for LGBTQ rights, which she's actually the only person when she runs in 72 that has a gay platform, right? And so she's intersectional, not because she's lived the experience of what uh, being black and queer means. She may not know what that means, but she knows that they are low on the totem pole, just like black women are low on the totem pole, or she understands that domestic workers, because her mother 
father was a domestic worker, that she decides to promote and create legislation around um, domestic workers. Um, and so all of those things are what? Overlapping, overarching, and it influences how she thinks about politics, how she thinks about policy, and how she's just really connected to people. So here, don't you love that feeling when you um, send an email to our colleagues in the library calling up a manuscript collection and then you dutifully go down the next day to look at it and you open up one of those gray archival boxes and you're like, jackpot, this collection is awesome. I do, I do. And we, we had just that kind of experience as we were looking through our archives for this segment with the Rochetta Randolph Wallace papers. And we'll link to the finding aid that led us to this collection on our show notes. Um, but this is a collection of about five boxes that were donated to Brooklyn Historical Society that are the papers of Rochetta Randolph Wallace, who was a longtime um, employee um, and secretary for the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. She actually worked for them for um, over 30 years. Yeah, she... And she lived quite long herself. Mm -hmm. um, she was born in 1884 in Virginia, went to school in New Jersey, in, including a business school where she gained a lot of the kind of clerical skills that would characterize a lot of her, her later work. She became, in 1905, the private secretary to Mary Ovington. Yeah, Mary White Ovington was one of the uh, a group of people, of an, an inter interracial group of people who eventually founded the NAACP in 1909. And we'll talk a little bit more about her in, in a second, but just a, a few years after the NAACP was found, she moved from being the private secretary to of Ovington to actually being employed by the NAACP. So she was really on the ground floor of the establishment and the growth of this incredibly important organization. She worked for James Weldon Johnson, for Walter White. There, There's correspondence here with W.E.B. Du Bois and, of course, Mary Ovington. And, like, it's just so – it was just like I was blown away because it was like a who's who yeah. of politicos yeah. in, you know – uh, black social movements in, in the United States, in New York. And so this collection, I mean, we talk about like jackpot. I mean, it is just so rich. There's a way that um, the collection is a is an entry point into so many other people's stories right. in a way that may actually obscure the politician right. that is Randolph right. herself, right. right? And I think that's such a point because who's looking for Rashetta Randolph? Yeah. And that's that's the challenge here. Yeah. Like we should be looking for Rashetta Randolph. Yeah. And and not yeah. use her as a utility yes. to get to the story of often a man. Yeah. Right? Thinking about what we mean when we think of political work and and the kind of, of political work that women engaged in that was very necessary for political activity. In our earlier segment with Zinga Fraser talking about Shirley Chisholm's initial work as an envelope stuffer, mm -hmm. and I, I'm so glad that she included that in Shirley Chisholm's political biography yes. because that's political work, Yes. right? And yes. that's what Randolph was doing here. She was not just a secretary. Well, and and let's not even just say just a secretary. Right. The secretarial work, yes, right, yes, is yes, the political work. Yes. And I mean, let's just play this out. What does the mimeographed flyer get you? It gets people right. to right. the protest, right. right? It's the difference between a successful protest right. and the lack of a successful protest. What does typing up a press release do? Yes. It gets your content and your message out on these it, uh, to these enormous networks. That stuff is the bread and butter of the success our failure of the movement and this woman was doing this for almost yeah. 40 years yeah, I mean as the as the person who read the letters that were written to these leaders um, she was on the front line yep. of of the public response to the work of the NAACP I want to raise the question of what is this kind of work worth 
Mm. What is it worth financially? Um, and we have a letter um, from this collection that we pulled, and we'll include images of it on um, on the show notes. It is um, two. Rochetta Randolph, right. from the person who was her boss at the time, right. who was James Weldon Johnson. And can we just stop here for a second? Because I mean, James Weldon yeah. Johnson. Yeah. Um, I mean, big, I was kind of I, I was freaking out when it's I read this, right? <laughs> I mean, James Weldon Johnson wrote the Negro National yeah. Anthem. You know, lift every voice and sing. And like, I was. And this is in his handwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is. I was just like starstruck yeah. with this yeah. letter. And then I started reading it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so sorry to burst your bubble, but I will <laughs> I will read out loud to, okay. to it from it now. Um, Dear Miss Randolph, I have your application for a raise in salary. The best I can do is to forward it on to Miss Ovington. And remember, Miss Ovington being one of the founders mm-hmm. of the institution. Did you say the committee was making and discussing the budget? I don't believe I'll be in New York before the committee uh, takes up that budget so and then he just moves on to new subjects right, right? so he's like right. it's essentially a blow-off right yeah yeah and what do we make of this um i think that there is something seemingly innocuous about this letter mm-hmm. i think you know it, i'm not doing it i'm not maybe doing him full justice because if we go on he goes on to sort of praise a bunch of things that she did thank you so much for sending me these clippings right. and thank you so much for you know getting you know getting this on the agenda for something else um the ad that you placed in the times is great with an underline so he's like also being a supportive boss but in a way there's that makes it like slightly more galling there's like an assumption of her the her her the wonderful and important and essential work yeah. that she's doing without a real fine uh, like a real like uh, an honoring of the of the financial um sort of worth of that yeah and I, I mean i think this comes to your question of like what how do we value and and what do we take for granted yeah i mean right? it's just like you know so this this praise is supposed to be compensation enough yeah. right there's, there's that, that there's that assumption and i'm glad you kind of checked me on this like not just a secretary because I do think we um, overlook and devalue um, the work that um, clerical workers do, that secretaries do. That or, is gendered did, work. And that is gendered work. And I think part of the devaluation is because it's gendered work, that we don't see it as essential. Yeah, and, and I think lest people think that this kind of sort of innocuous sexist reaction is um, limited to men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and not just sexist, right? It's a complicated, you know, as Zinga Fraser said, uh, the uh, politics of intersectionality are a very complicated amalgam. I-, I want us to next look at another letter. And this is a letter to, again, to Randolph from her longtime boss and friend, Mary White Ovington. Yeah, this letter is dated 1945, September 18, and she started working for Mary Ovington in 1905. So it's a so this long is a 40-year history with these two people. And uh, I'll read it, and of course we'll, we'll post it in our show notes. My dear, I suppose it had to happen, but I hate, hate to think of the NAACP without you in it. I won't talk about it. There's little to take me there now. So it's very like, I'm so sorry that you're leaving. So she's retiring. She's retiring. Ovington continues. Will you have any time to do typing for me? I do hope so. I want to pay for the typing of my book myself, not to have the association. I'm assuming do it. Shall you have any time? So there's, it's just... Oh my gosh, it's such a complex relationship because there's such an af- <laughs> there's a, such an affection in this letter. Yeah. It's signed Love MWO. You can tell that they're close, but there is such presumption, I think in the in one breath, pra- you know, sort of um praising and um and congratulating somebody on their retirement and in the next asking them to continue to do that labor. Yeah, I think there's a sense of entitlement here that the history doesn't change yeah. that sense of entitlement. Yeah. The affection doesn't change That's that right. sense of entitlement. Right. It is at the in the most generous reading, it's bad form as they would say, <laughs> right? But I think we can we we can be a little less generous. I think we need to I think what is so illuminating about this, and this is what is so beautiful about manuscript collections, is it illustrates the way that complex and unequal power relations yeah. play out in the most 
intimate in every day of ways. And I mean, like, let's just take it back a little. Mary White Ovington <laughs> was one of the founders of the NAACP. Right. She was like good friends with like Du Bois and right. Ida Wells Barnett. Right. Like this was this very f- interesting interracial group of people who are getting together and forming this sort of foundational right. organization. Um, she commits her life to, you know, what she called the Negro movement. This is not like <laughs> some Southern segregationist right, right, writing this letter, right, right? right? And yet, and even even with all that, these power relations and these power structures exist. Yeah, and I think, and this is also where we're like, oh, but she was a woman. Wouldn't she have understood how uh, this might have come yeah. off? And I think this is where you know, race intersects with this story, but also class. I mean, Mary Ovington was a philanthropist, right? So she... She was wealthy. She was very she wealthy. To, she, went to, she grew up in Brooklyn. She went to Packer. She went to Radcliffe. So, so the, you know, the, the best of education. Well, there you go. So um, if diff- they're both Brooklynites. Right. From very different Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think... I struggled with this letter. Yeah. And, you know, for our for our listeners, I think Jewel and I have, 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 have kind of been thinking about this. And we're interested to hear what people think yeah. about, like, if you... You're like, what do you make of this? Like, do you I agree with our read. Yeah, yeah, because you know, she did say I would pay for it, so at least she was offering to pay. And let's actually maybe complicate it even more because so one of the very interesting things to know about examining a manuscript collection that's donated by a person right. is that you almost always get the letters that um, that they received. Right. Um, you don't right. necessarily see the letters that they wrote. Right. So the next letter um, in this collection. Um, is again written by Ovington, right? So we don't know what happened in between. We don't know what Randolph's response right. is. Right. But um, in whatever response that was, this is what Ovington then re-replied. Right. She writes, my dear, I didn't mean to ask you to do anything longer, any longer for me at the office. Heaven forbid. I only thought of you as copying my manuscript sometime at home. I like your machine better than Carrie Overton's. Sorry, Carrie Overton. Um, but so clearly Randolph wrote something to her that was like, yeah, no, I, I'm retiring. I'm yes. not going to do this for yeah. you. Yeah, so I, I think that that gives us a little license to suggest that maybe Mary Ovington was out of place for making that request in the first place. Mary Ovington is a political figure. Mm-hmm. And Rashetta Randolph Wallace, we are contending and arguing and convinced, was just as important a political figure. In this installment of Voices of Brooklyn, we're going to listen to a voice from the Bedford-Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation oral history. This is a collection that was done in 2007 and 2008 in collaboration with the Bedford-Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation to celebrate its 40th anniversary. Bedsty Restoration was the first community development corporation in the United States. And the voice that we're going to be hearing is that of Elsie Richardson, who was a Brooklynite, a community organizer, and an incredibly successful activist um, who lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant and who played a major role in establishing the Bed-Stuy Restoration Corporation. She was also a co-founder of an organization called the Central Brooklyn Coordinating Council. Born in 1922 and died in 2012, so in her 90 years she saw some unbelievable and participated in some unbelievable developments and changes in the neighborhood of Bed-Stuy and beyond. In this first clip, we're going to hear Elsie Richardson talk about some of her organizing work as a founding member of the Central Brooklyn Coordinating Council. There were folks who were interested in coming in and bulldozing uh, brownstones, and we didn't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So were the people involved in the meetings, were they mostly um, people who owned their homes? Mostly people throughout the community. We made an effort to involve everybody in the community. We went into barbershops, beauty parlors, bars. We made sure that everybody had a a voice in what was going on. I really like this clip. I mean, it's short, but she, she she had me when she said beauty shops and barbershops, but then she said bars. To recognize the places 
where politics is possible, right? Where political action and organizing is possible. It's not like at a rally. It's not at, you know, a legislative meeting, a community board meeting. And certainly these are all important places. But to go to a beauty shop, to go to a barber shop, to go to a bar, I mean, this speaks to certainly her brilliance as an organizer, but also her, the value that she recognized in everyday people, the potential she recognized in everyday people, in their everyday places where they lived and worked and played and and leisured uh, to engage in politics. And I think we've talked a lot about the kind of non-traditional places where politics happen. And um, more often than not, the people who recognize that have been the people who have have been ignored themselves, and that is women, right? It's another example, um, as we talked about with Chisholm, of an empathic intersectional approach. It's about broadening the nature and the dis- the nature of political discourse. Yeah. It's about recognizing the intimacy of political issues, yes, yes, right? Yes, that yes. they are at the core of who you are and where you where, where you get you your hair done. That's right. Yes. Exactly. I- exactly. And again, it sort of knocks down these notions of the political sphere as one that is really defined and occupied by white men. Yes. And elites. And elites. Yes. And elites. Yes. Yes. So let's listen to one more clip. Uh, and to give us a little context, she talks about a walk. And this, this is a famous, now famous tour of then-Senator Robert Kennedy, uh, who in 1966, 50 years ago, took a tour of Bed-Stuy with community leaders to uh, assess the needs of the community. And out of that tour uh, came the initiative for the establishment of Bed-Stuy Restoration. And that walk, which was photographed and attended by press and and known by many at the time, may have been well publicized. What happened after the walk is a little less well known, and that's what Richardson is going to talk about with us today. In the car, as we drove around, was Don Benjamin, who was then the executive director of the Central Brooklyn Coordinating Council, Bobby Kennedy, myself, Lucille Rose, who was the first woman deputy mayor of New York City, Gabe Pressman, and uh, Ron Schiffman. And uh, we went to various spots. I recall that the first stop was on Atlantic Avenue, where St. John's Hospital now exists. And I'll never forget the expression on the face of the woman uh, in the apartment when Senator Kennedy knocked on the door and um, walked in, uh, she almost had a heart attack. (laughs) She was just shocked (laughs) to find out that he would be coming to her house. Uh, Those houses were uh, taken down later and uh, St. John's Hospital is now there. And then we went over to Gates Avenue and various uh, other areas uh, throughout the Bedford Stuyvesant community. And as I said, we arrived at the Bedford Y, uh, where we um, talked about the tour, and Senator Kennedy spoke and gave his opinion of what he'd like to see happen. And he said he was going to ask his um, his folks to do a study of uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant. And I told him, no, no, no. Bedford-Stuyvesant has been studied to death. What we need is brick and mortar. There's something so vivid about this clip. You can envision... Robert Kennedy walking around the neighborhood in his suit with his group of people. Mm-hmm. And as a sort of political anthropologist, taking a kind of detached view to the things that he sees there and then proposing a study. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think this thinking about the idea of this study, 
the supposed study that he proposes in the context of the larger um, sort of political tactics of liberals in the 1960s is really imp- it's really important to understand the context here so we have things like the Mo- Moynihan report um, sort of um, pushing this sort of racist notion of the of the black matriarchal society right we have the war on poverty which is this sort of very top-down sort of approach to changing inner cities that is drawing heavily on sort of broad statistical studies and so much of what we've been talking about today is actually just about people on the ground right uh i've been biting my tongue How would you like Bobby Kennedy showing up uninvited at your front door? And in the context of what is a slum tour, I mean, let's just call it for what it is, to make you part of a statistic that, I don't know, there's like, I have so many mixed feelings about, okay, so I'm going to try to do this. So we've been talking about the, 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 the role of women in politics in this episode and we have been talking largely about people who have been actively engaged in politics. Shirley Chisholm, Rochetta Randolph Wallace, and and, and it, you know, so initially picking this clip, I'm thinking Elsie Richardson is someone who's actively engaged in politics, right? So th- this is about thinking about her, and I think that is something that she contributes really important to this story. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about this woman at the door. Who, who didn't necessarily want to participate in the dog and pony show yep. of this tour, even if it's well-meaning. Absolutely. I mean, we know Bobby Kennedy's legacy, his history. Yes. We know what he tried to do in terms of the, you know, um, anti-poverty programs. And, like, you know, he was very much a sympathizer with, like, the, the Poor People's Campaign. All of, Okay, all of that. But, like, I'm thinking about this woman who looked shocked because here's Bobby Kennedy, gay pressman is a reporter, media following. Mm-hmm. This is a media spectacle. Mm-hmm. You, No one told me this was happening. And yeah. he just comes into the house. Yeah, I mean, God, if they showed up at my house today. Right? Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and to the context that you're talking about where so much of the and, – and, and certainly in the 60s, and I wonder how much we've changed, but in the 60s, the discussions about um, fitness and unfitness yeah. – and um, deserving of of government resources is the the burden of that rests so much on women right. um, who are pathologized right. as being unfit mothers, unfit caretakers, unfit homemakers. I mean, all gendered, right? To like roll up into this woman's house or apartment or whatever, and then this becomes an example of like, oh, what what a state these communities are in. Yep. They need help, like. I this is very troublesome to me. I mean, it's I think, you know, um, you I think we're suggesting a little bit like um, what was Richardson's role in this? Um, You know, in the worst light, she's enabling it a little bit. But maybe I'll sort of defend her a little bit um, in the sense that she was walking a real tightrope. I mean, she was an incredibly effective community organizer. And I think that her success lay in her ability to both be on the ground and as Zynga Fraser said, sort of practice and live that intersectional empathy, but also to be able to recognize the ways that she had to interact with what was a fundamentally racist system in order to get the, as she said, bricks and mortar that she needs, mm-hmm. um, that her neighborhood yeah. needs, yeah. you know? so. God, that must have been an incredibly challenging um, position for her to have been in, right? I agree with you because certainly the the end of this clip where she says, we don't we don't need to be studied. Yeah. Well, we need a brick and more. We need solutions. We need action. So I think to your point, she she was bridging that gap. Right. Like, don't use us for a study. Um, We we've done that. Now we need solutions. So I, I agree with you. I think in, in, in really interesting ways, Elsie Richardson and this unnamed woman are, both represent different kind of ways women have participated in politics. 
Yeah, and it also prompts really interesting questions about, um, you know, oral histories are envisioned often for us to fill in the gaps that are in the historical record, and it does, right? Right. But there are also gaps in this historical record. What was that woman's political life like? How did she vote? In what organizations was she involved in? Was she one of that block of African-American women voters that really ensured Shirley Chisholm's election in 1968? You know, we don't know if we don't have a name. We'll never know yeah. who she who she was and, you know, what her more complex story was. But it's so important for us to recognize her so that she isn't sort of reduced to that symbol or statistic that um, many sort of well-meaning but problematic white male politicians of the 1960s might have sort of used her as. Many of our listeners will be going out to vote on Election Day, but a group of people will be making their way to Brooklyn Historical Society and Building 92 at the Brooklyn Navy Yard um, to do something else. And those are teachers. And here to tell us a little bit more about that is one of our colleagues, Alex Tronalone, who is the manager of teaching and learning here at BHS, um, grades 6 through 12 and beyond. Alex, tell us all that's going on on Election Day. Yeah, we're hosting, you know, teachers don't have to work that day, so they have a day for professional learning. Here at Brooklyn Historical Society, we hear from the lovely Dr. Zynga Fraser, who we just heard from today. And she was brilliant. That's great. Um, we're talking about women in politics, Brooklyn and beyond. So we're going to pair her talk with some of our archives from In Pursuit of Freedom. Um, we'll talk about Marchita Lyons' influence on 19th century education for students of color, uh, Shirley Chisholm's congressional service, So, we'll, and we'll, we'll send you home with activities that teachers can do the next day, as well as deepen the theoretical knowledge. And resources like this very episode. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Um, And at the Navy Yard, we're doing a STEAM uh, professional learning. Now, tell us what STEAM stands for. Yeah. Uh, STEAM, you might have heard of STEM, which Mm -hmm. is science, technology, engineering, and math. STEAM is science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Mm, okay. This election day, we're partnering with City Growers, who are the Brooklyn Granges nonprofit arm. They run school programs for kids on the Brooklyn Granges one and a half acre rooftop farm. Um, we're doing, it's called Pollinators and Producers okay. because we love alliteration. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's about bees and urban agriculture. That's cool. How, how do teachers get involved in these programs? To register, you visit our website brooklynhistory.org. I think we'll include some links in the show notes. notes. Absolutely. Um, We have Eventbrite pages, one for each event, and you can register online yourself. You can, you know, send it to your assistant principal and have them pay for it. Um, (laughs) But we really welcome all the public school teachers. Um, And if you can't make it, check out on the website. We can come to you and your school and replicate these kind of PDs in in your school. Come one, come all, teachers. Yeah. So we're also going to endorse some events that are taking place at BHS um, this month. Alex, will you stay and tell us what event you are looking forward to? Absolutely. There's some really cool stuff coming up. One of the first things on the calendar is a screening of Los Suris. And this is a documentary that was done in 1984 on the lives of four people living in what was the Brooklyn South Side of Williamsburg. And what's really cool about this, it captures the really vibrant life of Puerto Ricans and Dominicans in Williamsburg, uh, a, a neighborhood, of course, that is has undergone significant change since 1984. And this documentary, like the film was languishing in the library archive, and it was like rescued and restored. And it's really just the story. The, the film tells an important story, and then the story of the film is just as yeah, important from totally. like an archival perspective. So uh, we're screening that here um, with Union Docs, and that's Tuesday, November 1st. The doors open at 6. The event is at 6.30. It is free. Um, but it's going to be packed, so sign It's going to be packed, yeah. And then there will be a, fa- a panel discussion with... Um, individuals who were in the original film oh, that's cool. uh, with community advocates, elected officials, and others. Alex, what are you excited about? Coming up on November 10th, we have The Darker Side of Reproductive History. It's a panel discussion mm-hmm. here with 
with Iron Carmen, who's on MSNBC and a co-author of Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, (laughs) Linda Gordon, NYU professor of history, and Adam Cohen, author of Imbeciles and the Supreme Court, American Eugenics and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck. Oh, wow. Um, You know, this is just one of those issues that people don't talk about, that Mm -hmm. every time you hear about it, it's just kind of shocking. Just, Mm -hmm. just, I can't Mm -hmm. believe that you you know this happened here um and so i think the more that we can talk about it the more public dialogue there is about it and it's better i think i think it always moves people when they when they hear about it doors are at 6:30 the event is at 7 10 dollars general admission 5 dollars for members and i am clearing my schedule to go to an event on wednesday november 16th um, at 6.30 here at BHS, um, which will be a conversation between two unbelievable scholars, um, Claudia Rankin, the poet, and Alondra Nelson, um, the sociologist. And these are two people who have engaged in themes about race and power in strikingly different ways, in really different fields, but in ways that um, that dialogue with each other um, really remarkably. So I'm excited to see these two amazing women speaking here at Brooklyn Historical Society. So that's the 16th of November. It's free and it starts at 6.30 p.m. And as usual, we'll give links to our Eventbrite signups um, on the show notes of this episode. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you, My pleasure. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guests, Zynga Fraser and Alex Tronalone. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. Mm-hmm.